I want to talk about um, some research that started off as my PhD, uh, morphed into a postdoc and has just kind of carried on since then, and talk about the policy impact that Touchwood it appears to be having at quite a high level at the moment. Um, what I'm going to do in, in this session is reconstruct for you how things have unfolded over the last couple of years, in particular in the last six to 12 months. Uh, I say I'm going to re reconstruct it for you. I'm actually reconstructing it for myself as well because I'd be lying if I said that three years ago I had this clear idea of what I wanted to achieve and I devised and implemented my master plan and it all unfolded beautifully because it didn't at all. I didn't really know... Uh, I didn't know in very precise terms what I was trying to achieve. It was very vague and abstract and I didn't really have any strategy and as time has gone on I've begun to develop a bit more of a coherent strategy and. A, uh, clearer goals as, as to what I'm trying to achieve. Um, so this is my reconstruction for you and me. Um, there's a, you won't be able to see this at the back, there's a caveat to this, uh, the title of my paper. So it says, how to get policymakers to notice your research with a bit of luck and a following wind. And as you'll see, as I describe what's happened, a lot of the, the, the good things that have happened have been due to chance events good fortune to be in the right time at the right place and meet some like-minded people who are interested in the topic and want to champion the findings and the implications of the research, opportunities to contribute to things that, that then had impact that was unforeseen. Um, and following wind is important, I think, or it can be important in that I think a lot of what's happened recently wouldn't have happened if there wasn't some political will and interest in, in taking it on board. Um, so may you have good luck in a, a following wind as well. So let me start by um, telling you briefly about the, about the research and what I found. And then I'm going to quickly tell you what the impact seems to be to date. And then I'm going to try and reconstruct how that, how that came about. Um, so first of all, uh, the, the first piece of research, there are two related pieces of research here. The first piece, um, as I say, was a postdoctoral piece of research extending my PhD thesis, and it, it took UCAS data on applications of admissions to universities, um, and I did a, a, a quantitative analysis of that data. And what I was interested in is, given the, you get to the point at which uh, non-traditional students apply to university, how come they don't tend to go to the most prestigious universities? And here I'm looking specifically at the Russell Group institutions. So I wanted to look at where, where are people are applying and are they getting offered places when they do apply. And the main finding of the research was that people from state school backgrounds and ethnic minority groups, when they do apply to Russell Group universities, they're less likely to get in than privately educated and white applicants, even when they've got the same grades and have studied the same subjects at A-level. That was the key finding of the research. Um, soon after I published that first paper, UCAS stopped letting researchers have the data that I'd used to, to, to do this research. Um, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But what had happened was that I'd already signed a contract with them to get some, some new data. So the first paper was based on an analysis of data from the period 96 through to 2006. They'd already agreed that they'd give me 2010, 11, 12 data. So they honoured that contract, so I had that data in hand. And I used that to look a bit more closely at the ethnic inequalities in admissions chances to Russell Group universities, partly motivated by the fact that um, when I was publicising the first paper, a lot of people, uh, 
particularly the Russell Group, was saying, oh, well, you haven't factored in the tendency of ethnic minority students to disproportionately choose really popular courses that have high rejection rates, so of course uh, they have lower offer rates than their white peers. So I was able to take what was circulating in the ether uh, and test that empirically in the second paper and what I found was that yes ethnic minority students do tend to apply to more popular courses but once you factor that in there are still these big ethnic disparities in, in offer rates. What I was able to do in that paper um, and a related one uh, was to also emphasise in the published work the fact that UCAS were withholding data and it felt to me that, that was a really important thing to get across in the academic publications um, as well as what the findings of the research were that we've not, we're not going to be able to know what's happened since because the data is no longer freely available. And while this second paper was um, uh, being reviewed and, and, and then was waiting to be published, I was invited uh, to contribute a similar piece of research to a publication by the Runnymede Trust focusing on inequality and diversity around ethnicity in higher education mm -hmm. and in that paper I looked at other universities as well and found that there were the same ethnic same pattern of ethnic disparities in offer rates at other old and new universities as well although they weren't of such a, a great magnitude so these are the three pieces of research fast forward to today and, and I'll tell you what the, the two major pieces of impact um, seem to be uh, the first is that um, government has begun to really take seriously, pretty much for the first time, the possibility that there might be uh, ethnic biases in uh, the way universities um, uh, make offers to students and, and how they treat uh, ethnic minority students when they're at the university. Um, you'll know that Cameron has um, called for universities to look at name-blind admissions policies. Um, that's partly drawing on my observation that selectors know the names of students and they could infer something about ethnicity so they might be unconsciously, uh, one would hope it's unconscious anyway, uh, biased against ethnic minority applicants. Um, I, I, I want to say I didn't suggest that we should go name blind because I think, as I'm sure many of you in this room think, that that would be to sweep a lot of things under the carpet and not actually address the real issues. So I'm not an advocate of name blind. Um, uh, admissions at all and I've um, made that statement publicly and in, in, in calls for evidence and so on. But this I think counts as positive impact because they're taking it seriously that there are some problems here and the universities need to take a long and hard look at what's going on and um, why these offer rates are so different by ethnic groups. And the second um, again touch would um, uh, impact seems to be that the that government is taking UCAS in hand and saying you really need to be sharing this data with third parties, independent researchers. Uh, you can't just analyse the results yourself and tell us, oh, this is how it looks. You need to to share it with policymakers so that other people can analyse the data and we can have an open and honest debate about what's going on in relation to admissions. Okay. So. To think about how this all came to be at this point, the first thing to say is I think it's really important to get your work out there in, a, in scholarly outlets because I think that gives you a kind of security when you're trying to um, affect policy change. It goes, other people, not, it's not just my work, other people have looked at this, they think it's uh, a robust uh, piece of research, 
uh, it's been peer-reviewed, that it's got a credibility to it because it's published in an academic outlet. And obviously it also gets your name known, your research known by other academics who themselves might be con well connected in policy terms or be able to recommend uh, your work to, to, to people who might uh, ultimately have some influence. But even before you publish work, I think you can also start to get your ideas and your claims out there by presenting to scholarly audiences. So my first publication on this topic wasn't until 2013, um, but I'd given a lot of talks about it previously. I'd, I'd gone to conferences and I'd also uh, sort of lobbied people to let me come and present at their departmental seminars. Um, and people are usually very happy to have, have uh, volunteers to give departmental seminars. Um, invitations to, to speak at learned societies like SRHE, HEA and so on. And so I was lucky that even before my first piece was formally published, I got invited by the Higher Education Academy to give a keynote speech at a social mobility and higher education conference. And that was a fantastic opportunity for me because it was a really big audience. It was the first time I uh, could meet face to face people from the Office for Fair Access, uh, people from Universities UK who I was delighted to find were quite positive about the research and keen to know more about it. Um, I also was able to use this uh, Higher Education Academy keynote speech as an opportunity uh, or as a kind of an occasion to publicise the research. So what I decided to do was to work with my university to, to work up a press release and put that out on the day of the conference. It's quite a strange experience putting together a press release that critiques Russell Group Universities working with the press office of a Russell Group University, but to their credit, they were great and they didn't try to uh, tone it down or dissuade me or anything. They really, they really w went with it. So what, so what we did uh, when this 2013 paper was coming out was put out a press release on the wire, so not to a specific journalist or publication, but put it out and see how it gets picked up. And it got picked up uh, really well. There was a lot of public, uh, publicity on the day, about 12 um, national uh, newspapers covered it and some, some international ones too. Um, not necessarily using headlines that I would have chosen myself and that's a bit of a risk about putting things out on the wire and not working one-on-one -on -one with journalists that they will sometimes uh, put it in a more uh, less nuanced way than you might yourself but it gave some good publicity to the research. Uh, and there was a good buzz around it at the time. Now, the two, two things happened soon after that that were simultaneously exciting and encouraging, but also disappointing and depressing. So the first thing that happened was that uh, the Russell Group was moved to respond to, to the media um, uh, interest in this research that suggests that Russell Group universities are unfairly uh, rejecting non-traditional students, state school and ethnic minority um, applicants. Um, and, and so it was, it was exciting that they had engaged with it. I'd not really, I'd been a bit scared to approach them before, to be honest, and I'd not really had much contact with them. I sent them my paper a couple of days before the, pre the press stuff came out. Um, and I thought, oh great, they're, 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 they're going to respond to it. Um, but if you if you're able to read uh, this text, basically what they did is they said, "Our universities strive really hard to be fair. Um, this research is deeply flawed because there are data deficiencies, and so it's not actually 
controlling adequately for all the things that go into the dis admissions decisions that are made. Um, they actually um, said there were some deficiencies that weren't really there. They said that I didn't take into account um, whether people had the right subjects for the courses they were, they were applying to. In reality, I did actually have subject uh, A-level subject in my analysis and degree subject, but I didn't have it as a, at the level of detail that you would ideally want to be sure that you'd matched up the person's credentials with the, the entry requirements of their course. So ultimately what the Russell Group did is they said, you can ignore this research, it's flawed, everything's fine, nothing to see here people, let's move on. That was really, you know, a bit deflating. The, the next thing that happened, which was simultaneously exciting and depressing, was that um, UCAS were either asked or decided to do some analysis of their data to see if my findings held up. Um, remember, this is the point at which they're not sharing their data with the researchers anymore, but they say, right, we're going to look at our data and see if what Bolivar's found is actually correct. Um, and they did this and they had more detailed data than they would share with me previously, uh, but they still found this ethnic bias in, in offer rates. Um, I assume that they focused on ethnicity because that's a protected characteristic. They didn't look at, at, at the school type differences because I guess they didn't really feel they ne needed to. So it was exciting that they'd engaged with it and that they, that they engaged with the analysis and found similar results, but what they did was they really downplayed it. They said, oh, it's much smaller than, uh, th than it appears to be in the researchers' work. Oh, it can probably be explained by differences in personal statements or performances at interview. So again, don't worry people, nothing to see here. Uh, you can all go away uh, and be happy. And uh, really frustratingly, they refused to publish any details of the analysis that they'd done. And, and as I've said, they refused to share the underlying data so that other people could look at what they'd done and extend and replicate their analysis. So this is in 2013, so I'm coming out of this a little bit demoralised, but I've got some new data from UCAS because they, they, they've signed the contract just under the wire. So I was fortunate in a way that I got, uh, my head of school made me go on a leading research course, uh, which was a massive time commitment, so I wasn't massively happy about it at the time, but it was really helpful because one of the things that we were encouraged to do was uh, to do a stakeholder analysis. Uh, and if you haven't done one of these, I would really encourage you to do so, because it, make, it forces you to really think about who are the interested parties here? Uh, who is likely to welcome and champion my research? Who's going to be threatened by it? Are the ways that I can um, engage with them to either let them know that this research is there and help them champion it or to overcome some of their concerns and reservations uh, and, and, and uh, hesitations about it? What can, I, what can I do to really speak to the people and convince the people that I need to speak to? So, so I did this exercise and if you, if you go on Google Images and type in stakeholder analysis, you get a bunch of diagrams. And I found that this one was actually the most useful one for me. And what I realized was that in this <coughs> quadrant here of people or organizations that um, have a lot of 
energy and a lot of influence and a lot of power to, to say and do things and be heard, but have a low commitment to um, recognising and responding positively and constructively to what I was trying to say, in that, that top left quadrant, that, that's basically UCAS uh, and the Russell Group, that they are potentially uh, threatened by the research, partly because there could be legal implications if they were to acknowledge and explore more deeply the possibility that there were ethnic biases in, in offer making, because obviously uh, race ethnicity is a protected characteristic in law, so it's, it's frightening terrain legally, let alone reputationally, to, to begin to engage with those issues. Um, so I realised that I was probably not going to get very far with those two stakeholders, at least not at least I shouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. But what I realised was that there were quite a lot of, uh, if, if you like, preachers, that is, people who really do care about these issues, would like to see something change, but maybe don't have a lot of time to invest in making it happen or a lot of power and influence to make a change, uh, but, 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 but potentially do and could be uh, engaged with this. And so that would, that would include uh, you, you guys, in a way, right? We, we all have a, uh, an interest in this, we all have some ways of getting the word out there and of championing it, but we don't have a lot of power ultimately to make things happen. So uh, fellow academics, uh, learned societies like SRHE and HEA, also third sector organisations like the Running Me Trust or the Sutton Trust, these are the, the uh, people, really um, valuable people to, to, to let know about this research and, and, and enlist help from. And then the champions are the people who, who are very positive about the research and want to take it forward and have some clout. And that potentially includes, potentially includes the media, but more often includes uh, public bodies like the Office for Fair Access, uh, like, like DBIS, um, some of the parliamentary uh, groups that are interested in issues around higher education access, ethnic uh, inequalities, uh, the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission and so on. And so I thought, oh, I'll forget UCAS and Russell Group, put them on the back burner and just focus on the people who actually do care about this research and would like to see some action taken on the basis of it. Okay. So as I was um, working on the, this second paper that was looking specifically at the ethnic inequalities in offer rates, what I started to do was write more for online audiences. Um, so I got invited or I invited myself to contribute to the blogs of SRHE, HEA um, and a website called the Economics of Higher Education to just kind of write 800 words summarising a key issue about data being uh, restricted, uh, data being withheld or about the, the universities not engaging in the, their admissions process and the, the contribution that that could make. I um, <coughs> wrote for online um, research news websites. So the first one I did was University World News, but I've done quite a lot for the conversation. Um, and I guess you, some of you will have done as well, and they're excellent. They're, they've got really good editors. Um, if you pitch something to them, you can go away tonight and pitch something to them, and there's a good chance that they will work with you to figure out, um, to, to refine that, and will actually run a a story by you and it, and it does get a lot of hits and it gets well circulated so it's a really good way to get to get that stuff out there um, and Twitter I'm kind of a bit of a newbie to Twitter but I've made some good friends who are some of whom are here on Twitter um, and I've used that to disseminate um, works in progress 
slides from presentations and so on. Um, it's good if you can to get your, your papers up on ResearchGate so that they're there rather than behind a paywall. That was an early problem I found. I used Bitly, do you guys use that, to shorten links so you can put them in tweets? And that also enables you to track usage uh, uh, hits on, on your links as well, so you can get a sense of if anyone's bothered to, to click on the link and look at your work. So I started trying to kind of get a, engage colleagues really with the research and find out what other people were doing through these online networks. And then I decided in terms of a, a media strategy when my second paper came out um, on the, specifically the ethnic inequalities in admissions chances, I decided instead of putting a, a general press release out on the wire, I'd try to work with particular journalists. And you, can, you read people's stuff and you kind of know that's a good person who gets this and who won't um, misrepresent it too, too much and who will be interested in talking to me uh, well ahead of time to get some sense of what it is I really want to say. Um, and there was, there was, there's a particularly good person, um, Chris um, Habergal at um, Times Higher, who has uh, worked with to put out a few stories to coincide with publications coming out and so on. Um, I was really lucky to get invited to write something for The Guardian as well, and they even pay you to do that, which surprised and pleased me. Um, and that actually proved to be quite important a bit later. This was just a one-off chance to get to write something for a national newspaper. And I did it, it was exciting, and then I forgot about it, and it came back. Um, and I got invited to go on uh, Radio 4, You and Yours as well. That was very fun. Um, before, I'd done a lot of, not a lot, but a bit of student radio interviews, you know? So if the Edinburgh student newspaper calls you up and says, do you want to kind of speak about your research for five minutes? do it because it's really terrifying but then it's less terrifying when you're on you and yours um, having heard your voice echoing back to you on the radio uh, already. One thing I tried to do as well, I said you know, who are the people who are the, the preachers and the champions, third sector organisations often are, are those people um, and I got um, invited to, well first of all I found about this all-party parliamentary group on race and higher education calling for evidence so I submitted uh, to a call for evidence and somehow that meant that I got, got picked up on Running Me Trust's radar and so they invited me to contribute to this publication um, that they were preparing on race equality and diversity in the academy um, and I got the opportunity to go to the Houses of Commons for the launch of that report um, and got a chance to speak a little bit in front of the, uh, some of the ministers, including um, um, David Lammy uh, was present there. Um, and this, this one proves to be quite important later on as well. So if we come back to the, the policy impacts of the work, one of the, 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 the big impacts was that um, Cameron announces that universities need to look closely at ethnic biases in their own admissions processes. And one of the things he said, he wrote this editorial for The Guardian, and one of the things he said was, uh, he, he, he threw up some statistics, 23% of black applicants um, get offers compared to 55% of white applicants, some research has shown. And I thought, oh, is that me? When I saw it, I thought, is that my research? And I looked at my academic papers and I thought, oh, this, this, the figures aren't quite right. 
And then I look back at the Guardian article that I'd written a year before, and I saw that the way that the editor had sort of rounded up my numbers, um, made them these numbers. So basically, politicians read The Guardian <laughs> and they don't read academic journals, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know whether he would have known about this work if it hadn't have been for The Guardian article and, of course, for the, the thing that I did with Running Me because it was had a House of, House of Commons presence and David Lammy was involved and so on. Um, so that... That Guardian connection proved to be quite useful. <coughs> One other thing I decided I would do where, whenever there was an opportunity was to communicate with public bodies. So I started looking out for calls for evidence from various commissions, the Higher Education Commission, the Scottish Commission on, on Widening Access, any commission that had some vague connection to, to what I was doing, to, to submit some evidence and make this case that we need to look at uh, ethnic and school type uh, inequalities in admissions chances and we need to really challenge the withholding of data on this because it's really important to, to see what's been happening since. Um, and I was lucky that I got picked up by the Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commission. They started to reference my work. This was in the June of 2013. It was, I think it's the direct result of the media attention in a few months before that that the, that the first paper had got. So it was on their radar as they were writing this report, a kind of serendipitous timing thing. And then subsequent to that, um, I was contacted by someone writing a, a, a report for the Social Mobility Commission who were interested in this broader theme of we need access to really rich longitudinal data to be able to make sense of uh, what of, uh, social mobility, equality of opportunity, educational careers and so on. And they were aware of the UCAS withholding of data and the, the, the things I've been writing about that publicly and approached me to ask me if I'd be willing to talk to them and explain what had happened with the negotiation about UCAS regarding data so that they could profile that in their report. And so that gave the UCAS data withholding uh, element uh, a more prominent public prof uh, and political profile as well. And I think that social mobility report on, on the, the, the need for data to, um, for us to begin to get to the, to the bottom of these issues was really helpful in that it was something that then um, went on to be a, a, a policy concern about universities need to be more transparent with their data, UCAS needs to be more transparent in sharing data on, on, on patterns of application and admission. Uh, and so in uh, February, uh, Sajid Javid uh, chaired um, a meeting to discuss some of these issues. And it said education chiefs were summoned to Downing Street, and I got invited as well. I, I don't think I'm an education chief. Um, and I was one of only a couple of researchers there, so it was really exciting to get a chance to go along and, and, and put my hand up and say, we need to get UCAS to share this data if we're going to get anywhere. And then a few days later, um, Joe Johnson, again writing in, in The Guardian, really, um, Joe Johnson was present at that meeting and he seemed to be really behind the idea of actually UCAS needs to share this data. So we started talking about um, legislative processes to make that happen, 
to, to make uh, it compulsory for that data to be available in anonymised form, of course, um, to researchers and policy makers. So I'll stop there and um, just say that, just reiterate really that a lot of what happened was uh, was luck and, and, and following wind and it's really difficult to know exactly how it's going to play play out ultimately. So my task and yours I guess would be your own research is to figure out how to keep the momentum that started, how to keep it going so that it actually does end up, uh, it does realise something at the end of the day. Thank you.